0: Alrighty, we are going to enter into the Word. If you want to start turning in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, we're going to be in chapter 18 today. So, let's pray as we enter into the Word. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you. Thank you. You are so much greater than anything that we come against. Lord, we just thank you for how you are going to speak to us at this time. Lord, we thank you for your Word and the Holy Spirit that inspired the word, and fills the word with life. Lord, I pray right now that you open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say to each and every one of us. Lord, I pray that you will take my words and fill them with the power of your Holy Spirit so that they are absolutely your words and not mine. We dedicate this time to you, that your will be done in it. In your name we pray, amen. All right, let's get started. So today we are going to be jumping again into the future of Israel. It's still our past, but it's the future from where we were last time. Um, last week we talked about David and him slaying Goliath. Uh, as many of us know, he later goes on to become the king, as we talked about. He became the greatest king in Israel's history. To this day, if you were to ask any um, any Jew who the greatest king is, they would say... David. He was the greatest. And God blessed him in this way by telling him that his lineage will be the lineage that will continue to rule in Israel and that the Messiah will eventually come out of. All right? And that is true. If you look at Jesus and you look at uh, his genealogy, which both Matthew and Mark put in their Gospels, Jesus is like doubly on David's lineage. Both Mary, who is his mother, comes from the line of David, and his earthly father, Joseph, comes from the line of David. So there is no arguing that Jesus comes from the line of David. All right? So we go from David. David has a lot of children, and they're a giant soap opera. If you ever want to read a biblical soap opera, read about David and his family. His children are a total mess. They try to kill each other, and they do succeed at that. There's all kinds of, it, it's horrible. Anyway, out of David comes Solomon, who becomes the next king of Israel. And he is blessed with wisdom. God comes to him and says, you can ask for anything. And Solomon asks for wisdom. He could have asked for riches, long life. He could have asked for all of these trivial things physical things, but instead he had enough wisdom to ask for wisdom. And God says, that is the greatest request you could have asked for. He blesses him and he becomes the wisest man in history. No one has ever been wiser than Solomon. And on top of that, he blesses Solomon to make Solomon the greatest king in the entire world. There is no king who is who has a better kingdom, who is richer, who is... I mean, he is ultimately blessed by this decision of his. Solomon, unlike his father, who was all about uh, warfare, David was a warrior and he conquered lands and expanded Israel. Uh, He started uh, the city of Jerusalem, all of these things. Solomon was the opposite. Solomon did not engage in warfare. Solomon was more of a diplomat. And his most go-to thing for diplomacy was marriage. Uh, In the ancient world, the way that you made peace with another nation was to marry royal families together. And Solomon did that so much that he ended up with like 700 wives. I mean, the man wanted peace in the world (laughs) around him. And he, he accomplished it. There was peace in the world of... In the world for Israel at the time, we have a gentleman down here saying, I don't know how much peace is in his house, but (laughs) well, when you're the king and you're actually around all 700 wives at one time, it's probably pretty peaceful for him. But anyway, Solomon was an incredibly godly man. He built the temple for God in Jerusalem. He dedicated it. It's an incredible story that you should read uh, and to see how God like literally descends on the temple when they dedicate it. All right. But during his time, he marries women from other countries who come from different pagan belief systems. And in the later parts of Solomon's life, he is swayed by them. And he begins to sway from worshiping only God to including other gods. And from this, we begin to get a schism in Israel. Uh, There are two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, who do not agree with the direction that the country is going as they continue to move further away from God. They decide to pull away and become their own country because they will remain faithful to God. And so, In the New Testament, anytime you hear about Judah or Judea, that is the, it's the kingdom of Judah. It's Judah and Benjamin. It's a small little country. And then there is the northern kingdom, which is the other ten tribes of Israel. And from Solomon on, their royal lineage is just a giant mess. It is broken up and it's horrible. They move further and further and further and further away from God. Uh, there's actually not another righteous king in the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom doesn't do too great either. They have one or two good kings, but they also are largely not that great. God tried to warn Israel. He said, listen, guys, you don't want to put your faith in a, in a in a human ruler because they are flawed. And they said, we don't care, we want one. And this is what happened. They're broken and they're split. So today we are going to be watch or reading a story about a prophet. And remember, prophets are those who God speaks to, who then speak to the people for God. Okay? Uh, at this point in history, they also would uh well the priests are the ones who would be the ones the people would talk to, and the priests would speak to God for the people. It was a two-way system, okay? The prophets were God's voice. The priests were God's receptionists. They were the ones who spoke to God for the people, okay? They were the ones who do the anointing and all that stuff, right? But at this point in history, when Elijah, who the prophet we're going to look at, the priests are not doing that because they are not priests of Yahweh. They are priests of Baal, okay? So, Elijah is a prophet to the northern kingdom, So he is one of the prophets to the 10 tribes of Israel that are in the northern kingdom. And they are, at the time, uh, under the king Ahab. Now, some of us who have grown up in the church, we know stories about King Ahab. Ahab was not a good man. He was a really, really bad king. And and more importantly, he married a really, really bad woman in Jezebel, okay? Okay. And they have taken Israel so far away from worshiping God to worshiping Baal, which is, uh, the, the deity that Jezebel worships, that, like, she's gone on, like, massacre raids to kill any prophet of, Je- of Yahweh's. Like, she wants them all dead. All right? So this is where we find Elijah. Elijah has actually gone in hiding from Jezebel because Jezebel's been hunting him. He's gotten to the brink of suicide because he's so despaired for what is happening. And he feels powerless in the moment. And I mean, it, it's not been an easy journey for Elijah. All right. So now we are going to start the story of this story, which I have titled the Battle Royale on Mount Carmel. All right. Or Carmel. Because I want to say that. Um, and this is in, in, in I know it said Elijah 18. It's in First Kings 18. And we are going to be starting on verse 16, and we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. So, if you will follow along with me. So, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When, uh, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. What you and your father's family have, you have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Baals is just a generic term for any other god. Just be aware of that. Okay. Now, summon and uh, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal and the four hundred prophets of Asherah and uh, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on wood, but not set it to fi- set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of, of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, um, what you say is good. Elijah, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. "'Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire.' So they took the bowl given them and prepared it. They then called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. "'Baal, answer us!' they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. "'Shout louder!' he said. "'Surely he is a God. "'Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. "'Maybe he is sleeping.' But you, but must be wakened. So they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, so that um, as it was their custom, until their blood their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, "Come here to me." They came to him, and he and he repaired the altar of the Lord. Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two selahs of seed. That is roughly 24 pounds of seed, just so you're aware of what a selah is. He arranged the wood, cut the bone to pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jugs of water and pour it on the altar, on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil— And also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishron Valley and slaughtered them. Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face against his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went and looked. And looked, went up and looked. There was nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant replied, a cloud as small as a man's hand was rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile the, the sky grew um, the sky grew black with clouds and wind rose a heavy rain started falling and Ahab rode off to Je, uh, Jezreel. the power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucked his cloak into his belt and he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel the Lord the word of the Lord all right. there's some history you need to understand about where we're at. Because of Ahab and Jezebel's slaughtering of the priests, tearing down of the Lord's altar, they're moving away from the worshiping of the Lord. The Lord punished Israel, and he brought a three-year drought. It did not rain in the land of Israel for three years, so much that People were starting to, were dying because they didn't have water. Their crops didn't have water. Their animals didn't have water. The funny thing is, is that Ahab had enough water to make sure that all of his animals and all of his uh, household was taken care of, but everyone else was suffering. And Elijah would point these things out to Ahab, trying to bring up, like, some repentance, but it was always met with "I'm going to kill you." And uh, finally, Ahab decided they needed to meet up to discuss this. And he sends his servant Obadiah, who is an undercover uh, follower of the Lord. He was he was a follower of the Lord, but he worked in the house of, of Ahab, so he had to be secretive about it because otherwise Ahab would have killed him. All right, so. Obadiah comes to Elijah, tells them that they're going to meet. He goes back to Ahab. Ahab comes. They meet. All right. This is where we picked up the story. And Elijah says, let's have a contest. Let's have a battle between my God and your God. You have 450 priests for Baal. And what was it? 400. 400 and something of um, Asherah, which is a a female God. He says, get them all up to Mount Carmel. Let's, let's have, let's have a, let's just figure, let's put them to the test and one God will come out victorious. Elijah has no fear who will come out on top, but he wants to, he wants this to be public. He says, go and tell everyone. So Ahab does. He thinks he's got him. He thinks one, he's going to be cornered up on this mountain so we can get him after this battle is concluded and we know that he is, you know, wrong. And it's going to make him look better because he knows he's going to be right. Elijah, on the other side of it, knows that God is the one who will come out victorious and he wants everyone in Israel to see it. He doesn't want this to be some kind of a secret battle that can be spun in a different direction to the public who don't witness it. All right. So that's what happens. Everyone comes to Mount Carmel. All the priests of Baal and Asherah comes up and Elijah's there and he says, "Okay, here's the deal. What I want us to do is we're going to have two bowls. You get one and I get one. Build an altar to your God. Cut it into pieces. Put it on the altar, but do not light it as a sacrifice, but instead call on your God. And if he answers, he will light it. And that will be proof that he is God. And I'm going to do the same thing. And he says, and they say that's good. All the people agree that that's a good contest. They agree with this plan. And so they begin. The the priests of Baal get their bowl. They cut it up. They put it on the altar. It says they do this in the morning. They begin to pray and shout and dance around the altar. And they do their thing. Noon comes. Nothing has happened. Bowl is still sitting there, is probably gathering flies at this point, and the the priests are not getting anywhere. And Elijah, being the competitive man that I think he is, he starts to taunt them. He's saying, Hey, maybe you need to shout a little louder. Maybe your God isn't here. Maybe he's off somewhere. Maybe he's traveling, maybe he's asleep. And you need to wake him up. In the the actual translation in this is maybe he's in the bathroom one of the, one of those things is he might be indisposed currently they do a great job of making it look better in the bible <laughs> but that is the a, a more accurate uh, depiction of the hebrew he's like what are you doing like get it going get it, make it happen if he's you obviously need to be more vocal And they do. They get louder. They start to cut themselves because that was the custom for them was to to slice their arms with swords or spears and to use their blood as enticement to the God to come. Midday comes, nothing happens. Midday passes and they get to the point of what would be the the normal evening sacrifice. And Elijah doesn't really say, you've had your chance, you've lost, I'm going to do mine. He just begins to, to start his He begins to rebuild the altar that was originally there to the Lord. And he takes 12 stones representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he puts them on the thing, on the altar. Then he puts the wood out. Then he digs a trench around the altar. Priest Baal didn't do that. He's changing up his, his, his sacrifice. He digs this trench around it. He cuts up his bowl, he puts it on the thing, and he does not pray yet. Instead, he tells some servants, hey, go and get four large jars of water and bring them here and dump it on the altar, on the sacrifice. Okay, they do it. Go do it again. We're at eight now. They do it, they fill it, they dump them again. He says, go do it again. 12 large jars. Large jars mean this tall, roughly this wide. Big, big, like they would be household jars of water. Not like a jar of water. That is a lot of water. What have they been in for three years? A drought. That water is extremely valuable. That's like gold. Can you imagine being in the in the crowd as as you're part of the the Israelites who literally have been starving because they don't have enough water to to water their crops and here is the prophet of Elijah dumping water water onto this altar I mean it's just it's dumping and it's going on the meat and it's it's going into the ground I mean it's it's seeping into the ground So much water that it stops draining into the ground, which is a big deal, because if you've ever just put water under the ground, it doesn't just sit there, right? It goes into the soil, right? It's so much water that it fills the trench. Wow. That is, that would be hard to watch. But he does it. And then he prays. And I love his prayer. I love his prayer here because he doesn't do what the what the priests of Baal do. What were they doing? They were dancing around. They were cutting themselves. They were shouting as loud as they could. Elijah just prays. And it's really a pretty simple prayer. He literally just says, God, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Show them you're real. That's the, that's the pared down version of it. I mean, it's, it's literally, let them know that you are the one true God. Let them know that what I have been saying about you is real. Show them that the one that they should be worshiping is you. I mean, it's like three verses in the Bible. It's, it's like less than a five minute prayer. We pray longer in our in our prayer time than Elijah does on that altar. I mean, he's in a battle for his, for his life, essentially. And he says this simple little prayer, and what happens? A column of fire falls from heaven and burns up the all, the sacrifice. But it doesn't just burn up the sacrifice. It burns up all the wood. It burns up the stones. It burns up the very soil the altar sat upon I don't know if you've ever had a fire in your uh, at your house as far as like a fire pit or or anything like that uh, you, when you when you have a fire one of the best ways to put out a fire is to throw dirt on it because fire doesn't burn dirt normally right when you when you build a fire pit you line the fire pit with rocks because fire doesn't burn the rocks normally the fire that comes from heaven in this one moment where Elijah prays this simple prayer this fire is so intense so hot, so divine that it incinerates the stones of the altar and the very soil in which it was sitting on. That is. I guarantee you Elijah went away a little sunburn. you that is an intense fire. A lot of people read this story and they think God sent the fire down as the answer to the prayer. But if we think back in our history of Israel, the Lord told the Israelites when they left Egypt that he would guide them through the wilderness, right? And he said, I'm going to be there with you in two forms. During the day, he would be in the form of a pillar of clouds. During the evening, he took the form of a pillar of fire. So when Elijah prays this prayer, God doesn't just send down a tongue of fire to ignite the the altar. It, It is the very essence of God himself that comes down to the altar. The very same pillar of fire that guided the Israelites through the desert is the very same pillar of fire that lands on Mount Carmel and incinerates everything around that altar. So when Elijah says, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will you let them know you are real? God doesn't just send the postcard saying, hey, I'm here, here's a a snapshot of me. He shows up. the people who are there instantly fall to the ground in worship. They know their history. They they know that a pillar of fire is more than just fire to them. Every year they celebrate the Passover and they talk about what happened around the Passover. Every year, they relive in their minds and in their stories about the Exodus. They know what a pillar of fire is. They know it is God. And they're terrified. They worship him. They say that he is the one true God. And Elijah rallies them quickly, he says, Grab every priest of the of Baal and, and hold them. Do not let a single one of them get, a, get away. And the people do, and they capture them, and they take them down to the valley of, of the to the Kishron Valley and, and they're slaughtered there. Every single one of them is killed, so that the that the cult of Baal would not continue in the kingdom of Israel. And Elijah tells Ahab. Hey, you need to leave because it's going to start raining soon. It hasn't rained in three years, but it's going to be raining pretty hard soon. You're going to want to leave. And he does, because I guarantee you what Ahab is, he needs to change his pants. He is terrified of what has just happened. Ahab isn't sitting there going, yes, this is the one true God. Worship him. He's not on the ground. He is in his chariot shaking and quivering and making a mess. Because he is terrified of what is going to happen to him, who is the one who killed the priests of God, the prophets of God. He is the one who married Jezebel, who brought this into the country. He knows he is in trouble, and so he flees. Elijah goes to the top of the mountain with his servant. He says, look out. He gets down in, in, in a basically a fetal position. He's praying, and he tells his, his servant, look out over the sea. He does. He goes over and he says, I don't see anything. He goes, go do it again. Seven times he sends him up to the top of the mountain. Says, go look again. Finally, on the seventh time, he says, there is a cloud forming over the sea. It's not a big cloud. It's the cloud the size of a man's hand. This big. Woo! A lot of rain from that. But it's forming. There hasn't been a cloud in the sky for three years. And there's a cloud. And the Bible says that rapidly the sky grew dark. Meaning that little hand cloud all of a sudden was becoming a rainstorm cloud. Filling the sky with a dark cloud. And Elijah says, we need to get down the hill before it starts raining and we can't get down the hill. And this is one of my favorite parts of the story. It says then that... The power of the Lord came upon Elijah and he tucked his cloak into his belt and he ran. So we live in a culture of superheroes now. If you have not seen any of the Marvel movies, you can join my wife who's not seen a single one of them and I have to watch them by myself. But we all know what a superhero is, right? Some person or something who is more than just a normal human. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah so much that he became like the flash. He became faster than a chariot, which at the time is the fastest mode of transportation. It says he beats Ahab to the city. Ahab left long before he did. But the power of the Lord gave Elijah super speed and he ran down the mountain and beat Ahab down there. The story continues and he confronts Ahab and he confronts Jezebel and Jezebel gets killed and eaten by dogs. It's great. Continue to read that. We're not talking about it today. The Bible's awesome. It is a whoo. It's a good it's a good book. It's got some great stories in it. For you for you people who have teenage kids or grandkids. There are. There's a graphic version of. When I say graphic, I mean like comic book, not graphic as in explicit. There's a comic ver- version of the Bible that you can get, uh, and I think it's a great idea because this stories in the Bible would make great, great comic book stories because they're so. Yeah, they're good. They're exciting. Anyway, I digress. Elijah brings in a change into the kingdom of Israel that has been desperately needed. Because from this point forward, every temple and altar to Baal is torn down. Every Asherah pole is taken away. And they reestablish the altars of the Lord. They re-establish the worship of God, the one true God, in Israel. So, what do we get out of this? I think that the coolest part of this story is Elijah's prayer. We face lots of stuff in our lives. I mean, as we prayed earlier in the service, uh, it just feels like things are constantly, it's like you're just waiting for that other shoe to drop. What What's next? And God isn't waiting for us to say some elaborate prayer, to go through some kind of special ritual in order to be able to be in his presence or, or to be able to get his attention. Because I'm going to tell you, the mocking comments of Elijah to those priests were that they believed those were true about their gods, that their gods were not ever present. Their gods could be gone. Their gods could be asleep. Their gods could be indisposed in the bathroom. It, it, it they were. That was a belief they had. So he was joking with them. But the thing is, is that he's also saying, "My God is not like that. Our God is never on vacation. Our God is never on the other side of the planet, inaccessible to us." Our God is ever-present. Our God lives within you in the form of the Holy Spirit. And instead of having to do some elaborate dance, now if you like dancing, go for it, it, it but instead of having to do that or say some special prayer in order to get God's attention or to get God like motivated to want to do or be involved in whatever you're asking Him to be involved in, We get to be like Elijah. And we basically get to just tell God what we need. He needed God to show up. He needed God to show the people that he was the one true God and he was the one that needed to be worshipped. And that's all he asked for. He didn't ask for the drought to end. He didn't ask for rain. He, He didn't he just asked a simple prayer. And we, as Christians, and really even those who don't believe, we, we don't have to say something special for God to be paying attention and to answer. Now, there are times when we pray something and God says, we're going to wait on that for a little bit. Well, maybe that's not the greatest thing for this situation. He's not a genie. He's not just going to give you what you want. But he desires to know what you're dealing with. He does know it, but he wants you to tell him. He wants the relationship. He wants to communicate with us. Just like Elijah did with him. We tell him what we're dealing with, what we're facing, how we're overwhelmed, we're scared that if the winds shift in just the wrong way, some of our houses might be at risk, some of our businesses might be at risk. We're worried about the pandemic. We're worried about our troops who are trying to deal with what's happening overseas. We're worried about what's happening in our church as we're going through this transition. We're worried about our kids and our grandkids, about will they make the right choices? Will they get involved with the right people? We're worried about the people that God has put into places of positions of power in our world. Will they seek God's wisdom? God wants to know what you think of those things. He wants to know how he can be involved with you. Because sometimes, I'm going to say most of the time, God's answer is, how can you engage in that in a way that will bring about his will? God doesn't normally just snap his fingers and make things different. He normally says, you as my child, how can my Holy Spirit guide you and influence you to influence others in these situations. The only way we can hear that is if we're praying with him. We're praying to him, and we're listening to the response. We're reading our word, hear what he's guiding us to do. We have a direct line to the creator of the universe. We don't have to call long distance. And that's such a cool, amazing gift that we have. Let's use it. We pray. Lord, wow, thank you. We thank you that you are in our midst. You are involved. You, you make a way, oh, man. And as sometimes it's not very, it can be a little scary, but you often use us to help make that way. Help us to be sensitive to your guiding. Help us to hear you the way that you're leading us. So that we can be an active participant in that. Help us to get into the pattern of coming to you first and often. We want our relationship with you to be alive and vibrant and growing. Our prayer life is the first step. Thank you for what you have shown us today, that you've spoken to us today. Give you the praise and the glory. Amen. Amen.